Welcome to the Pursuing Life Podcast. I'm your host, Monica Kirsch. Every week, I'll be sitting down with people from the Calvary Church family to hear stories of what God is doing in, around, and through them as they take intentional steps to pursue life in Jesus Christ. We believe that storytelling is powerful. God has made himself known to us through the stories of the Bible. Jesus told parables or small stories to teach kingdom lessons to his followers. And God continues to write stories of his goodness and faithfulness through the lives and experiences of his church, ordinary people just like you and me. Today, we're continuing in our Celebrate Faithfulness series. This year, Calvary Church is celebrating its 85th anniversary. As we take time together as a church to reflect on God's faithfulness, we'll be taking time here on Pursuing Life to hear about God's faithfulness in the lives of the people of Calvary Church. In the Old Testament, we read about the people of God setting up Ebenezer's or Stones of Remembrance as monuments to remind themselves and future generations of the great work that God did. And that's exactly what we want to do. As we grow in our relationship with God, live out our faith, and invest our lives, we get a front row seat to the amazing work that he's doing. By celebrating his faithfulness now, we open up the door to look back later, believing that he will do it again. In today's episode, I'm sitting down with Bill Schmidt to hear about his long history with Calvary Church. Bill was on staff under Pastor Crichton from 1965 to 1970, and in the 1990s, he and his wife Eunice became global partners. After they retired from the mission field, they settled back in Lancaster and got plugged back in at Calvary Church. Bill is sharing today how God has been faithful to him through Calvary Church, but I think you're also going to recognize that God was faithful to Calvary Church through Bill. It is a privilege to share this conversation, so let's jump right in. Bill, thank you so much for taking time today to Happy. share your story and and join us here on Pursuing Life. Thank you. It's delightful to be here. One of the things that some people may know and some may not know is that you were on staff here at Calvary Church, correct? For five years. For five years. So can you tell us the timeline of that? Well, I was 26 years old, and I'm... 83 now, that tells you that's almost 60 years ago. Wow. That was 1965 that I came. Pastor Crichton had just been here for perhaps 18 months. Wow. He had come and had not had any staff changes. He had come and and had the same staff serve with him as had been here with Dr. Torrey. I came fresh out of seminary, and I graduated from Dallas in June, and my dear Eunice was, who's with the Lord now, but she was, as Mary, as the Bible says about Mary, she was great with child. Mm. Well, coming to the end of August, Eunice was due the 1st of September. Wow. And so I actually showed up a whole week ahead of when I was supposed to be here, my concern being that Eunice was going to go into labor and we were moving from Dallas to who knows where. Right. And we had lived in three or four places. She had seen a half a dozen different obstetricians. And I was just very concerned she was going to deliver and where would we be and where would she go and outside of just some strange emergency room. So we came here early and Pastor Crichton was astonished to see us in the audience <laughs> a week early. 
But uh, anyhow, we came in August, middle of August of, of 1965. And I was the first assistant that Pastor Crichton had hired for himself. And so it was a whole new experience for me. I had no idea what I was getting into. And I loved the old church. I loved that old sanctuary with the shape of the cross and Mm -hmm. the transepts. It was just wonderful. I liked it. So it was new for you, and it was also new for Pastor Crichton then at the time, too. That's right. I mean, he had served in Canada, but it was his first hiring of an assistant help. Yeah. And so my job was youth, Christian ed, and then there was a clause in my job description that said, I called it the et cetera clause, and such other things as the senior pastor deems necessary. Okay. And that was where the real mentoring and discipling took place was in the et cetera clause. Okay. So anyway, I flew into Philadelphia, Pastor Crichton came and met me there, and we talked nonstop for a half a week. He and I really hit it off. Wow. We would sit out in his driveway and talk, and Dorothy would come out and say, what are you two doing? <laughs> and we'd just be sitting there talking about theology. We couldn't, we couldn't get over how much we agreed and how much there was to talk about. I'm not much of a brainchild, but it was just fun to talk with him and to find out how much we saw in common and saw things similar. Yeah. Wow. I want to hear more about what God did in your five years on staff and beyond. But before we get into that, I want to ask you, what did God do in your life leading up to you coming on staff at Calvary? So you said that you were at Dallas Seminary. Yes. Where did you grow up and where did your journey with the Lord begin? I grew up in Baltimore as part of a brand new church plant the church called Hailthorpe Community Church okay. in a town called Arbutus. I don't know why it was called Hailthorpe when it's in Arbutus, yeah. but there you are. interesting. And uh, anyway, it was a brand new church, started as a Bible study in a little room that some men rented above a drugstore, and then they went to a bowling alley, which was sort of next door, And they put a false floor in right over top of all the bowling alleys, and we had church there. And that lasted for maybe five, six years. And then in the late 40s, the church was outgrowing everything, you know, all the facilities we were using. Mm -hmm. And so it came to the point where we had to build something. And of all things, the man they asked and called to be the architect was Eunice's father. Wow. And I used to see this little 12-year-old girl come along, tagging along with her daddy, and he would come and talk to our church leaders. And I'd say, who is that? Oh, that's Howard Zimmerman and his little girl. Uh, What's her name? Eunice, I think. And that was how I I first saw Eunice. Never occurred to me that there'd be anything. And then both Eunice and I applied to Wheaton. Both of us were turned down. They said that we should both apply to, and her grades are better than mine, that we should apply to another college. So I applied to Bob Jones. And that was the year that Bob Jones came out publicly and said that he was against Billy Graham, and he started being very critical about Billy Graham. Hmm. 
My mother and dad heard that on the radio, and they decided they were brand new Christians. They were only three years old in the Lord. And we used to sit on the porch and listen to the old-fashioned revival hour and to Billy Graham on Sunday afternoons. And Billy Graham preached the gospel was so clear Mm -hmm. that my mother and dad were very offended by anybody who would criticize anybody who could preach the gospel that clearly. And so they decided that I was not to go to Bob Jones for that reason. And so we discovered King's. Okay. And I went to King's, and so had Eunice. Wow. And so we got there, and in our freshman year, we met. Uh, Not particularly friends, but we met, and we both became class officers. And in time, towards the end, I really fell in love. It took her a little bit longer. That was God's hand in, you know, all of the complexities of that. Right. Of bringing me there and bringing her there. And we didn't become an item until my senior year, I guess it was. And then we were just, all through these years, we had just been friends. And we really became best friends. Mm. So I often would, as a pastor, say to young people, if you want a good marriage, marry your best friend. Mm. And then finally, when I went off to seminary after King's, Uh, I went off to Dallas, and we weren't really dating, but I had written her a letter, and she said, how about stopping by over Christmas? And when I did, she told me that she loved me. Wow. And that was such a jolt. But anyway, that was the beginning of a serious relationship. And as soon as we both knew we were in love, marriage was not far off. We knew each other far, far too well. Yeah. We could just talk about anything and did for hours. And so at the end of my second year in Dallas, uh, Eunice and I got married and we went back and lived in some faculty homes for the summer and in the apartments. And finally, I graduated and my grades, my grade point average almost, not quite, but almost doubled, would tell you how eminently average I was doing in my studies. And then when I got married, I was so happy that my grade point average just soared. Wow. So when Calvary was looked, Dewey McConaughey had been the assistant pastor. He had been responsible for young people. When he left, then the church needed an assistant. So Dr. Toussaint was here for the Bible and Missions Conference that year. And I guess that was 1963 or 64, maybe 64. And in March of that year, Dr. Pentecost was here. He was preaching, and Pastor Crichton saw him at lunch or something, sometime when they had time to talk. And he said, did he know of any student who was graduating that he would feel comfortable in recommending? And God bless him, Dr. Pentecost had just taken a shine to me, and we became friends I attended his church. And so he said, yeah, there's a young guy named Bill Schmidt. And he's not, a, he's not an A student, but I think he'll do okay. And so the pastor and I started corresponding. And next thing you know, here I was, August, sitting in the audience a week early with Eunice, who was great with child. And we came like the 18th of August, and our son Stephen was born on the 8th of September. So we were only here wow. two weeks before she gave birth. 
So we had time to unload the furniture, not unpack the boxes. But right. So a lot of transition all at once. Oh my goodness, yes. And that was the hand of God. I mean, in, in bringing us together and leading me to Dallas and then bringing me to Calvary. Mm. I have on my computer uh, or on the screen a little post-it and it says the debt I owe CIC, Calvary Independent Church. That's mm. this church. That's what it was called back then. And I have five things. I don't know that I can recite them, each one. But one was that they trusted me. They gave me a chance. You know, I was at best a B student. I was working my way through school so I could graduate without a debt. And there were no scholarships or anything in those days. You know, you didn't have anybody to pay your way. And so I was working as a butcher. Wow. And Pastor Crichton sort of thought that was amusing. <laughs> uh, and, I, and as a result of that, I learned cooking because it you know, was a related industry. I worked in the kitchen then. But all of those things were just, the hand of God is so easy to see in the rearview mirror. You mm-hmm. look back and just see, that was God. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing. And, and when God brought us here, that was probably the life-altering change aside from trusting christ marrying eunice the big deal was for me to come to calvary and for pastor Crichton to have the vision to see something promising in me wow when we moved to calvary homes i was driving through about two months or so before we made arrangements to come and i saw a guy who whose face i recognized after all these years it'd been 50 years And he came over, I was asking where something was, and he directed me, and then he said, his name was Jim Funk, I said, did your wife used to sing? Oh, yeah, she's right in the house here. Yeah, she used to sing. She had a gorgeous soprano voice. Mm. And he said, I'll go get her. And when she came out, it was the peg I knew. Well, they had always been kind and very, I want to say generous, but not in a financial way, just kind and thoughtful and believing in me. And they came out, I couldn't believe after all these years that we recognized each other. And Jim said, do you know what? He said, it's been over 50 years. And he said, Peg and I still pray for you. I said, you're kidding. Wow. After 50 years, he said, we believe that God had his hand on you too. And we didn't pray every day. He said, but you were on our list and we prayed regularly for you for 50 years. I said, Jim, I think I owe you lunch. Wow. And we both laughed <laughs> uh, for 50 years of praying. He got lunch. But anyway, that was, I mean, we just look. And, and as I look back, having Pastor Crichton to mentor me, uh, I had never had a pastor who mentored me. And he just would sit and talk and talk and talk. I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I came out of seminary. I had graduated in systematic theology, systematic theology, and had come here. And now, if you're going to be a youth pastor, you have a degree in youth ministry or something. It's true. Then, an assistant pastor was a guy who was on his way to be a senior pastor. Mm -hmm. And that was the way I saw it. And I guess that's the way Pastor Crichton saw it, because he just constantly was teaching and mentoring me. So I just saw him as a as a surrogate kind of father. Wow. Do you still keep in touch with him today? 
I do. We don't have as much contact. That was a kind of an unrealistic expectation on my part. I mean, he's over 100, 101 now. And when I came back here and we moved into Calvary Homes, I sort of thought we'd pick up where we left off mm. with, without any consideration of the fact there's been 50 years yeah. that's gone by. So I was kind of disappointed that we didn't become buddies and, and go sitting in the car and chatting again. But we have, and it's a different kind of closeness, but he still is my father. You know, he still is my spiritual mentor. And if I need counsel or advice, that's my first thought. It isn't my, necessarily my first action. It isn't what I do. My first thought is always, I should talk to Eric about this. Mm. And it was always Eric and Bill. My daughter is 55, and she says to me, when we talk on the phone, sometimes she'll say, well, say hello to Uncle Eric. So anyway. That's really cool. It's been a, been a sweet, wonderful relationship down through the years. Yeah. How has he impacted you to then mentor others in the next generation? Exactly. I, I had staff and I treated them exactly the way he treated me. Wow. On, I think, the second or third Sunday out of seminary, the pastor was away. Calvary was the whole church filling the sanctuary over there. It was maybe a thousand people. My third Sunday out of Dallas, I was in the morning service preaching, not because I asked for it, but because he insisted. Wow. As an assistant pastor, he demanded through the years that I served with him, all of us have a ministry of the word. That was not a privilege. That was a given. Mm-hmm. You had to. And if you didn't, he wanted to know why, and we start looking for something. Mm. But even the choir director had to teach a Sunday school class. Wow. I taught the young married couples class. It was the first couples class. The church had a lot of Anabaptist plain roots. Sure, that makes influence. sense. Mm-hmm. All the men in prayer meeting on Wednesdays, all the men sat on one side, women sat on the other, prayed men with men with women. And so to have a couples class was kind of revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And our couples class just started to grow like crazy. We started off meeting in my office with about five, six couples on the first Sunday. But very quickly, I think within three or four months, we had outgrown that class. I mean, we were sitting in the doorway and out in the hall and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And so then we got... We were shifted off to one of the balconies in the one of the transepts, and we had to have chairs up there, and we were all over the place. And then Harper Hall, who was the Sunday school superintendent, discovered this class of all these 20 and 30-year-olds. And so once every fall, he would do a raid on my class and get Sunday school teachers for the Sunday school. Wow. And so that was what kept it manageable, was that he... You know, once a year, I would lose 15 people or something. I mean, it was sizable. One Sunday, you come up, and it looks like a third of the class or half the class was gone. Anyway, it's an amazing thing how many of the young people, the teens, went into ministry. Hmm. And I can't claim that, you know, that was me that did that. But we, with, with the teens, in the summertime, we just went down to, I think it's called the Seventh Ward. 
Okay. It's a section of, of Lancaster. And on Sunday afternoons from maybe June to the end of August, we would go there on Sunday afternoons and we take a portable PA system, a, a pump organ, and 25 or 30 kids, and we go down in several carloads and we preach on the street. Wow. Do you know what? You know why we did that? Why? Because that's what somebody did for me. Really? And I thought when I was growing up in Baltimore, this guy named Gil Greger, who was my teenage Sunday school teacher. Gil Gregory was your teenage Sunday school teacher? No, I'm sorry. I (laughs) said Gil the Habit. Al Gregory, Gil's brother. Okay. Uh, We're almost related. And uh, Gil's other brother, Greg, was Amos, was my uncle. It was my okay. favorite uncle. He, he married my mother's sister. Okay. Anyway, so Gil and I are, are very close. But anyway, the, his brother had been my Sunday school teacher, and, and so he had taken us during the summers for two or three years to the point where we were sort of fighting over the microphone as to who was going to preach. Yeah. Terrible <laughs> sermon. No training, but we did it. And who knows what the result of that was, except that when I came here, it just was a knee-jerk reaction. What do you do in the summertime? Well, on Sunday afternoons, you take the kids to the Seventh Ward, and we go out preaching. Right, it's what and you so knew. So all the kids would go around passing out tracts and talking to people. Wow. And we would be at the microphone, you know, and one of the boys, not me, but one of the kids would be preaching. Wow. And then we had, we would do... Holiday things, there was nothing on Good Friday. And so I talked to the pastor, couldn't we do something? And we agreed, let's do something with the kids. So we'll have the kids, the young people put on something. What about Christmas Eve? How about doing something on Christmas? Well, let's do something with the kids. It was a great thing because people didn't think we were going modern. We didn't think we were going liberal by doing that. And more to the point, it was discipling, mentoring for the kids. Yeah, absolutely. And so I would work with some of the teen boys and get them to have a message. And we would have like two boys speak on the Good Friday service. Mm. And Christmas Eve, we had this big musical extravaganza, which began with just the choir and some kids doing things. And then it very, very quickly morphed into something much bigger and much more professional. But it began with very humble beginnings and just sort of mentoring kids. Now, the thing is that as I look back, it was, it was amazing how young people were coming out of those two places, out of the youth. That's what I was paying attention to. Yeah, exactly. Um, Jim and Rosemary Brubaker were in my mm. Sunday school class and others. Just remarkable how God used those ministries and how humbled we were that some of the people in both the youth group, junior high, senior high, and the young married couples, how they went into ministry. Hmm. And in those days, there was one day of the Bible and missions conference, the, the Saturday. The conference started on a Sunday. So a week later, there was a Saturday. And that was just considered youth day. Okay. And all everything on that day, the workshops, the speakers, everything from 10 in the morning to 10 at night, everything was geared towards reaching high school and college kids. Wow. 
And so there were hundreds of kids that would come in from Youth for Christ rallies and campus crusade groups and InterVarsity and all that kind of thing. And from all over, everywhere. I mean, the, the reputation of the conference had gotten around. And so God used that. And God used, to segue into something I think you want to talk about, God used that very thing in our life. Yeah. Talk about that. How did he use that in your lives? We had missionaries come around for our church in Baltimore. Among them were a couple named Gil and Nancy Gregory. They were serving with Young Life in New Jersey, and they were one of the first missionaries to go out from Halethorpe Church. Hmm. And so every six months or so, they would show up on a Sunday, probably prearranged with the pastor or something. He would have them give testimony, and they'd take a love offering for them, and and raising support was a was really a tough thing. And Gil and Nancy, they lived on nothing. I mean, I now know, I didn't know then, but I, I now know that they were just paupers practically. And so a couple of times a year, they would come by the church, and the church would take a love offering or do something special for them. But there was that emphasis. Billy Graham was just becoming a name. Mm. So there were things that were happening that were sort of revolutionary. Yeah. I mean, they were world-changing. But I didn't know, we didn't have a missions conference, at least not that I remember. But when I came here, we sure did. And I started in the end of August, beginning of September. October, we had a fall missions conference, which, which was just a weekend. And then the second full week in March, we had the Bible and missions conference, which was huge. I'd never been in an environment where missions was not an add-on. It was the reason for the church's existence. Hmm. It was what Calvary Church was. And so we would hear these sermons, the Bible lessons on the weekday mornings, which just dazzled me. Oftentimes, the people barely got to hear Dr. Walvert or these big-name speakers that they brought in. They were for the missionaries. And so there would be two or 300 people here on a weekday morning. That's when Dr. Pentecost would preach. And he'd get one Sunday, mm-hmm. one Sunday morning maybe. But there were all these missionary testimonies. And they would people would get up and they'd tell how they'd suffered or what they'd done. And one that stands out in my mind is Alan Redpath, who I think her his daughter's name was Marjorie. And he told the story of how she had gone to Africa under AIM and how he and his wife and Stephen Olford and his wife had met them and they had dinner together on the Queen Mary to celebrate their departure. And he told this gut-wrenching story about saying goodbye to Marjorie and their little babies. And I thought, oh my, could I ever do that with my Stephen? Could I ever let my little one go? And so we started praying that the Lord would make us willing to let our kids go. And that prayer grew from being willing to, Lord, please take them. And so we dedicated both of our children to Christ. And Pastor was big on that. Pastor was huge. I think the most defining thing that he taught that changed me was the concept of the lordship of Jesus Christ, the absolute sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. He is to be worshipped and obeyed. Hmm. 
And when Eunice and I came to that, I remember that there was a, that mission conference that after Dr. Redpath had preached, Eunice and I were both so stirred that the Holy Spirit had spoken to both of our hearts. We said, Lord, if you want us, if you want our kids, whatever, we're yours. Hmm. And then we finished up our time here, and I went off to a conservative Baptist church in New, New Jersey, and I was there for nine years. Do you know what I did? Tell me. I developed a missions program, and a, you know what I preached? I preached the Lordship of Christ. Wow. And we developed a missions program in that church, and for almost 10 years, we were sending out one new member every year. We averaged... Over the period of nine years, we had nine new people, members of the church, go. That's incredible. Well, that was, that was of course, the, the impact of Calvary, because Calvary was doing that. That was all that, all, all that they would support. But they, it was the church members. I mean, 10% of the membership of Calvary Church was on the mission field. So if there were, when there were 1,200 members, there were 120-some people out wherever serving across the land, the church took on their support. And so that's what I was trained for. I mean, that's what I saw. And I saw it working. So I preached it. I thought it was good enough for Eric. It's good enough for me. And so that's what I preached. I preached the Lordship of Christ and that we need to obey him. And we had people going out and it was just thrilling. And in both churches I served, the church in New Jersey, the church near Philadelphia. In both of them, we averaged a little over one person per year hmm. going out, a new member. You know, we might miss somebody one year, but then the next year we had three. Sure. But anyway, it was just really thrilling. But what also also happened in that was that the Holy Spirit has spoken to Eunice and me. Hmm. So all the while we had in the back of our head, one day God is going to use us in missions. We don't know how. And, and that was as far as it went. We knew one day, and we were willing, but Eunice was not gifted in languages, so she knew she would really have trouble learning a language mm. that scared the dickens out of her. But if that's what Jesus wanted, okay, I'll, I'll do what I can. We went on until 1994. In the meantime, I had been on the board of UFM, on the board of Andy's Evangelical Mission, and SIM. And so I served on those mission boards because I'd seen Pastor Crichton serve on mission boards. And I thought that's what a missionary pastor does. Mm -hmm. And so I was praying. And one day, I was praying for about a year that God would open a door for me. One day, a guy named Joe McCullough, who happened to be the director of Andy's Mission, knocked on my door. Can I talk to you? gives me this spiel about Andy's mission, and then says, we'd like you to pray about the possibility of coming to serve with us. Well, I laughed at him, and he was offended. He didn't know how to take that. I was laughing because it was such a, an incredible answer to prayer. Right. And so I, you know, he said, why are you laughing? And I said, Joe, I'm not laughing at you. I, I, I just am laughing. It's like Abraham. I'm laughing because I have been praying for over a year that God would open a door. I don't have to pray about, am I coming on your board? Yes. The answer is yes, I will do it. Wow. And he was, he was just astonished because he really didn't expect that. But right. I, was, I was ready, and I was just waiting for the invitation. And that was, the, that was my introduction. I served there, 
And the year after I decided it was too much, I was involved in too much, I had to give that up. I had also joined SIM's board up in New Jersey. And a year after I gave up Andy's or Bolivian Indian Mission, Andy's Evangelical Mission, a year after I gave that up, they merged with SIM and I had them back again. Wow. So anyway, you know, it's another another time that you just see this just incredible guidance of God. Yeah. But all of that is because of the impact of Calvary Church. Hmm. It was just we Eunice and I, when we left here, we were just so impacted, so touched, so deeply in love with this congregation that we asked them if it would be possible if we could be change our membership to associate members. There's a little clause in there that allowed in the Constitution for people to become associate members if they were going to ministry. And so missionaries and pastors, and but mostly missionaries, mm-hmm. were allowed to be associate members, which meant you didn't have to attend. Okay. Which if you're a regular member, they expect you to, to, to attend. Mm-hmm. And we would send in a gift now and then, but we were almost always here at least once a year. We would try to spend a Sunday here. Just wanted to come back and hear Pastor Crichton Wanted to come back and see our friends and see our couples and see the what teens were around and, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And we bring our kids and everybody ooh and ah over Steve and Sue. But that connection was just always there. And so when I went to a new church, when we had an anniversary, when we had some kind of celebration, there's no question about who we always had, Pastor Crichton. He would come and one time I didn't know he was coming, and I was, I started the introduction to my sermon, and he walked on the platform. And he said, Bill, go sit down, take your notes. You can preach that next Sunday. <laughs> and with that, one of the elders came up and explained what was going on, that they I hadn't known anything about that. Wow. But, uh, you know, that was just the tie. Mm-hmm. And everywhere I served, there was the impact of those years at, at Calvary. So that when in 1994, I was doing a staff conference for SIM, and they said, we need to talk to you, pulled us off into a private room and said to Eunice and me, would you be willing to give up your church and come with SIM full-time as a missionary and be a missionary pastor, be a pastor to the, whatever it was, 1,800 or so missionaries at that time around the world for SIM? And I had off, off and on prayed that God would open up that kind of thing. Why? Because I'd seen Pastor Crichton do it. Right. I mean, it just seems like I was, I was trying to imitate him, but that wasn't it. I wanted to serve Christ the way he did. Hmm. I wanted my churches to be as alive and focused and missionary-minded and scripture-minded as Calvary was. Calvary was always the standard. And, and it worked. I mean, my churches did not, you know, I, I never was a Chuck Swindoll or a Dave Jeremiah, but God blessed our work. You know, we always grew some in the church in New Jersey was in a Jewish community. Wow. And so we initiated joint meetings with the synagogues. Hmm. And we had a fantastic time. And then in Bristol, we did similar things. But it was all Calvary, in the back of my mind, Calvary was always the model. And so SIM says, are you willing to give pastoral care? Well, I was ready to say yes right then. 
<laughs> after a little bit of discussion, Eunice says, well, we wouldn't have to raise support, would we? Well, I'm afraid, yes, you would. Oh, and that was the only part of it that, that frightened us was the matter of getting financial support. Mm-hmm. So that was the spring of 94. And I was coming back from a board meeting. You just picked me up at the airport and she was driving. We pulled into the driveway of our house and we were talking about, should we go with SIM? And she says, I've been praying about this the whole time you were gone. And do you know what I've decided? And she slapped the steering wheel. She says, I think we need to just trust God and do it. Wow. And that's what I was waiting for. So she felt she could trust the Lord. I felt that and that the support would be God's problem. Yeah. And that's what he did. In we sent out our letter to our friends and churches and whatnot. We sent out our first letter saying what we were going to do, and it went out on Memorial Day. By Labor Day, the first Monday in September, we had over half our support in, and we had we didn't have a meeting or anything. Wow. Just from friends. And so SIM looked at the way the support was coming in, and they said, normally we don't do this, but how about if you start the 1st of September? And so we did. Wow. And we, so we were able to sell our house, and we moved to Charlotte, and we bought a house, all this on faith. And uh, here we are down there in Charlotte, and we were in, the, in our house, I think, eight days before they sent us off to do a conference in Guinea, West Africa. Guinea is an intensely Muslim country. And somebody said, that's a rough place to send them for their first assignment. And the person in charge says, it'll be good for them. (laughs) (laughs) And it was. We did great. Eunice was having trouble sleeping, and she said, Bill, I just... I sensed something evil, and we were, we were living in the guest house. And she said, I just feel that, I feel the presence of evil. And old Bill was so tired. I've preached two or three times a day, and so I was sleeping just fine. So I told some of the men, and they said, oh, my goodness. I'm so sorry we didn't think of this. So they came, and they had all the missionaries who could make it come, and they walked through and around the guest house, praying as they went, asking for God to protect and any evil spirits to be driven away, you know, that the Spirit of God to be greater and protect us. You know, slept like a baby for the rest of our wow. 10 days there. Wow. I mean, I mean, and that was, it was just the fulfillment. So when, when our son died and I came back here for the, they invited me for the fall conference, I think it was, that he died in September and we came in October. And I mean, we were really raw. The grief was just dreadful. But they interviewed us in the morning services in the old church. And we both said, why not? We definitely be willing. I mean, we're doing what God has called us to do. And whatever the cost, whatever he does, we know it's for our good. And so we just take that by faith. I've sort of come that way with losing Eunice. I've come to the point of saying, Thank you, Lord, for doing it the way you did it, because mm-hmm. your way is right, mm-hmm. uh, even if I don't understand. So anyway, God just used, again, used Calvary Church and used Pastor Crichton, dear Pastor Crichton, to be our mentor, and it was the model. Mm-hmm. So I saw him go off, and I figured the way he did it is the way I would do it. 
And, you know, I sort of imitated what I thought I saw. So when we moved back here in 15, I guess it was, people would say to us, well, you've got the misery of finding a new church. No, no, it's never an issue. And do you know what? We knew the policy of Calvary Church, that they only supported members. Hmm. Or at least we thought we did. I don't know whether the policy had changed at that time or not in 94. I don't know whether what had changed. But anyway, we wrote a letter and we said, knowing that, we said, we would really value if you would pray for us. Hmm. Take us on as prayer support. We are not asking for money. We only want you to pray. We knew that if Calvary Church prayed, the money would come in. And that God would answer that prayer, your prayer and ours. And so a couple of weeks later, I think we were here, because it seems like it was a face-to-face conversation with Walt Jackson. And he said, well, Bill, we got your letter. Of course, we'll pray for you, but what about money? I said, Walt, I know the policy. I know that in the past there have been feelings and there have been big discussions and people have tried to finagle into the system, and I don't want that. I don't want anybody arguing over us. If you just pray, God will take care of the money. Hmm. He said, well, there are a significant number of people in this church who really feel strongly that we had a part in this, that we need to come through with some money. And I said, don't do it. Don't make it an issue. We, we would rather just have you pray, and we want our name and reputation clear and clean hmm. and the love affair to continue. And so he said, okay, I'll take care of it. The next thing we knew, we got a letter from the missions board saying they were taking on $600 a month. $600 a month. That was huge. I mean, that was our far and away our biggest supporter. And wow. it put us over the top. I bet it, it did. It made, it made us then fully supported. Oh, Bill, so wow. we were we were just thrilled. How could they do that? And I remember when we got that letter, I brought it in. I showed it to Eunice. I got, went out and got the mail and came in. And I stood in the kitchen and read this letter, my eyes bulging. And you just looked at me and she said, what is it? I said, look at this. And she read the letter and both she and I started to cry. And we just stood there, not sobbing, but just tears running down our face. So deeply touched. And we just stood in the kitchen and held each other for like five minutes Mm. and said, God, we just don't understand how good you are. Mm. And then in the story goes on. And then in a year or two, SIM changed their policy that they were not going to pay for our travel. They wanted us to raise the money to pay for the travel. Mm. And so we thought, oh, we can't do that. So we thought, where, you know, I, I, who are we going to ask? I can't ask my supporters for more money. Where are we going to go? I've asked the churches. And about that time, we got a letter from Calvary Church, form letter, saying uh, we're evaluating the project, projects for next year. Please give us a brief summary of any project you're working on. I mean, we're a missionary pastor. We go over, conduct a conference, stay there for a week or two, pray, cry, love, visit the missionaries, and then come home. Mm -hmm. What projects do we have? So I threw the letter away. Oddly, I had no other trash that went in that trash can, and that letter just lay on the top Hmm. for several days. And one day I was up in my office, and I got thinking, wonder if they would consider our travel a project. So I wrote Dave a letter, and I said, you know, this is what has happened. You know, if you Calvary could give a little bit, that would be wonderful. It would be encouraging. Next thing you know, get another letter. Dear Bill, the missions committee met on Monday night, and 
we have decided, look, we have the money in this fund. It's wrong not to use it. And we feel that God put it there just in perfect time for you. So we are going to give you $400 a month to go towards you. Now we're getting $1,000 a month from Calvary Church. Unbelievable. It's another time. You know, I stand in the corner, stand in the kitchen and just hug each other and cry. Right. I mean, just to see God's faithfulness and his goodness to us was just indescribable. Yeah. And our love, that's, that's why I have this sense of loyalty. That's why I have that little sticker on my monitor, on my computer, mm. the Dead I Owe Calvary Church, because they supported us just incredibly. Yeah. They supported us until we had to say stop. And it just is marvelous. So this church changed and transformed my life. It transformed my marriage. It transformed my attitude towards my children, towards what I possess, where I'm going, the kind of church, how to pastor a church, how to preach. I mean, all of that was touched. One time, a member of the church that I have known for many years said to me, I I don't know, I think the emphasis back in the old days was wrong. I think, I don't know that we were doing it right back then. And I said to him, oh, don't say that. What this church was in those days so transformed my life, my ministry, my wife, and my children, and my family. It so transformed us. No, the message of Calvary Church was then and is now dead on the money. And so that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Yes. Amen. Bill, there's so much more that I could ask you, but for sake of time, I want to wrap up by asking you about that post-it note on your computer. When you think about the debt you owe to Calvary Church, can you just... It's really not a debt. I mean, I I fully believe in grace. Oh, absolutely. You know, but I just feel obligated. I feel a sense of, I don't know what else to call it, but debt, an obligation of honor. Yeah of just what the church did. And it's encouraging to Bo and George and Steve. And it's just a sense of, I want to honor the Lord. I want to honor the church. I want to honor Eric. For lack of a better word, right? Yeah, it's my debt. It's my obligation. Yeah. Well, as you think about that, can you just close us out here with a few words on God's faithfulness? Oh, my word. I mean, you know, all through my rambling here, I've been talking about God is faithful, I have discovered, even when you can't see him. I I think the thing about the footprints in the sand is kind of corny, but it's very true Mm. that at the times that you only think that there's one set of prints, that you only think you're in this alone, that you're in it alone. But the truth be told, there is the, there's a hymn that we sing, Once to Every Man and Nation, and there's a stanza. The, and the stanza ends, Standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly how I feel. God is not a faithful when we see him doing miraculous things. I mean, he is. But that's not all that he is. God was faithful when our Stephen, whom... We had given to the Lord, and he was a young husband and a young father, baby 11 months old, when he collapsed and died Hmm. in a pulpit. God was faithful the night he took Eunice, and I thought I was going crazy, and my brain didn't work. 
God was faithful. I can see that now. So God's faithfulness is not just when we can see it. God is faithful, period, all the time. As my father used to say, Yavul, Amen, and Gesundheit, just always. <laughs> um, and whether you feel it or you don't, we walk by faith. And that's the thing. I think the message of Calvary, the message of Pastor Crichton, was the lordship of Jesus Christ and obedience to him and the simple walk of faith. Mm-hmm. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And only trust him. Only trust him. Only trust him now. And and that's it. You To trust him when it's not easy is just so rewarding because he is just faithful. I don't think that you could ever be sorry for being obedient to Jesus. Amen. God is faithful. He who called you will also do it. Well, Bill, I am just so grateful for you sharing your story. We can put a stake in the ground of God's faithfulness because we can look back and see all the times he did it before. <laughs> And that's exactly what you've shared with us today. So thank you for taking time to share your story and to encourage us that God was faithful to you. He was faithful to many before you, and he's going to be faithful even now and into the future. Yeah. So thank you so much. You're welcome. My joy, my debt to Calvary. Yes. Amen. Bill's story is just one of many that displays what it looks like to faithfully pursue Christ. God has been faithful to Bill, not just in the big moments that he shared today, but through all of the little moments in between. And as Bill said, because of God's faithfulness, we can trust him with our stories, knowing that no matter what, his character will never change. It's our desire as a church to continue to tell and hear stories that celebrate God's work, and we want to hear your story. If you have a story that you feel the Lord is prompting you to share, you can fill out our story form at calvarychurch.org slash share a story. We would love to celebrate the work that God is doing in and around you. As always, don't forget to follow the Pursuing Life podcast so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. We hope you'll join us again next Monday for the final episode in our Celebrate Faithfulness series. But until then, thanks for tuning in and have a great week.